when we're talking about the idea of renewals and people coming in the door with 2.5% rates and going up to 6%, there are people who are devastated when they see that. There are certainly people that I've talked to that are, are almost in tears when they look at their renewal papers and say, hey, my payment just went up from $2,100 to $3,000. I don't think I can do this. Welcome to the Tom Story Show with Steve Karish and Tom Story, where we discuss everything real estate or whatever else is on our minds. Steve, you good? Alex, you good? Let's go. Welcome back, everybody, and happy new year. I hope 2024 is off to an amazing start for you, your family and friends, and everybody that you care about. We welcome you back here to the Tom Story Show. If you're watching us on YouTube and you have not already and you're still wondering what is my New Year's resolution going to be for 2024, don't worry, we figured it out for you, is subscribing to this podcast and liking this specific episode. Steve, before I introduce the guest, and we talked about this a little bit at the end of last year, do you have any real resolution for 2024 that you're going to try and follow? No, no. <laughs> None. Well, I'm not, I don't know. Why, why do we need a resolution for it? Come on here. Let's get serious. Let's. 2023 was an amazing year. 24 is going to be better. Okay. Do more in 24 is what I hear a lot of people saying. So let's, let's stick with that. If you're an audio listener, we appreciate you being here. If you have not already left us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate that as well. Now on to today's guest, our first episode of 2024. Alex McFadden has joined the show from Floor Mo Mortgage Co., also known as The Mortgage Pug on Instagram. Welcome, man. How are you doing? I thought you were going to say from Florida. I was jacked up there for a second, just dreaming of those waves. Um, <laughs> hey, brother, I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me on. I'm pumped. I'm going to steal a couple of those intro uh, points from you because you got me buzzing here. Yeah, Don't forget man. those Spotify listeners. Got to give it that five star. That's true. That's true. We do appreciate the Spotify listeners too. And apparently we learned last week, Steve, that nobody listens on Google. Like two people listen on Google podcasts, but it's pretty much just Spotify and, and Apple. Um, Alex, man, welcome to the show. Happy New Year. Uh, Steve has no resolutions for 2024. Do you have anything more inspiring to share with our listeners? Well, I was listening to what you had to say there about do more and, and mine is actually doing less. Mm. So, um, um, no, I mean, I've, uh, I'm one of those guys that you see on Instagram posting on a regular basis, trying to figure out why people are waiting until January 1st to get things going here. Um, I started, uh, I don't know, man, I'm more of a like, uh, come up with a big plan or a big goal when I feel like it's the right time and then continuously look at evolving and changing as time goes on. But yeah, my big thing, man, in, in like just, you know, it's a good time to take some reflection because it is a little bit slower as far as, you know, people coming to the door. I mean, it's supposed to be slower. It's right. just do less, do a little bit less. It's uh, It's been a crazy few years, as you know. And like Steve said, I, I, I love that point there, man. It's been incredible 2023. I feel the same way. I just want to, I just want to do a lot less and focus down, man. And so that's it. And I think there's something to be said about, and we talked about this offline before we started recording, but like taking some real time off over the holidays and actually focusing on family and not being obsessed with work. Cause I think all three of us can fall into that trap very easily where work just kind of consumes everything. Have you found that's been a big change for you over, over this recent holiday season? Oh, massive, man. Like, listen, we're recording this in the morning on a, uh, we won't say what day, but on a uh, typical, I would say non-work day for a lot of families. And Taking that time off to just do a little mental reset, a little recharge, like you said, see the people. I mentioned this to you. I've been doing this since 2011. It's the first time since 2011 that I've taken the days off between Christmas and New Year's and, and 
other than just, you know, quick messages here and there, pretty much just chilled out and it's unreal, man. Just enjoying it and heading to Mexico in a week. So there's oh. my year's resolution. Go enjoy beach. Nice. And you are geographically located similar to Steve, but you guys don't, you maybe know each other's names, but you don't know each other. So let's make an awkward introduction um, on the podcast. Why have you guys never met? What's going on? I mean, Steve, I don't know. You tell me. I guess I haven't cold called him yet. So we'll, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm in my basement too much. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Time. Actually, it's it's funny knowing a couple guys here that are spending so much time on video and, and content and so forth. It is, it is actually a strange thing. So nice to uh, formally and formally meet you, Steve. I'm pumped up about this. This is going to be good. Absolutely. Have you picked up on Tom's little thing here? He wants us to really ask him about his New Year's resolution. Like that's really what he's getting at here. So Tom, what do you have going on? Thank you for picking up my cue there, Stephen. Um, so I go through the same thing every year. <laughs> I didn't actually think you're going to say that, but I will share. So I go through the same thing every single year. 2023 for a lot of people in our business was a very, very difficult year. Right. Our uh, our organization actually during the time of the year where they do the I know from the outside, it looks silly, the award ceremonies for realtors. And I get all the flack that we get for it. But at the end of the day, recognition is important for people. Right. And a lot of people, our company actually said, hey, if you don't want us to announce what level you got this year, just tell us because people were embarrassed that they had such a dip down in production from previous years. Right. So there's all these people that really didn't financially do anything close to what they consider a, le a level of success. Right. And we can talk about this maybe more in this episode, but that that carrot will always be there. There's always going to be a higher floor. There's always more to do. And we had a, we had our best year ever, which is crazy. Like looking back at the numbers and, and now that I've actually taken some time off and looking at everything, I'm like, how the hell did that happen? And I don't care if we sell 150 homes again this year, whatever it is, it's like at the end of every year, no matter what, and I'd like both of your perspective on this, I'm looking at this being like, how am I going to do this again? <laughs> like, I think I know what I'm doing and I've done it every year and it keeps happening. But like, I, I don't, it doesn't matter what level of success you get to. For me, it's like, I could never sell a house again. For other people, it's, I could never do this again or this again. So how are you guys kind of getting into the right mindset where last year happened, it's now gone. And you can celebrate your wins, but you got to focus on what's coming up next. Maybe Alex will start with you. Yeah, man. Well, I had a pretty crazy uh, last 12 months. I mean, um, you know, for any of those who don't know me, uh, you know, I started a company in, in 2019 with a few partners and we built to, we were actually uh, number two in the country for a couple of years there as far as uh, units funded and, and wow. family served, if you look at it from that perspective. And in the end of that last year, we made a decision to go a different direction. <clears throat> and I basically started from scratch at the beginning of this year. You know, all things uh, withstanding, I had to hire and, and start a brand new team, build new mm. processes. Uh, so, like, it's a lot of work once you built up that kind of a back end to, to do it all over again. And so uh, for me, I mean, I think this year has been really unique in the perspective that I, I had that. Uh, it's not that I ever lost the hunger, man, but my hunger was was like uh, 12 out of 10 from the beginning of this year to get going. And, and it never took a single shortcut, nor had a desire to to take a step back. So, I mean, let's let's take a step back on what you said there. Transactionally speaking, there's no denying the fact that the market was substantially down compared to 21. And even the first half of 22, people were cakewalking through 20, the second half of 22 because, because listen, man, they, 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 they you know, uh, blew their load in the first six months. And they were like, yeah, I hit my target to hit my numbers. Now I can chill out for the second half. And obviously that impacted a lot of people for last year. And I think coming into it for a perspective of I had to earn every single thing every single day was um was my mindset shift 
biggest thing that you know I changed and the biggest thing that I did differently is I, I spent a lot of time and money on and I've always done this but even deeper in in like coaching programs and going to different types of uh, educational events not just in Canada but I went uh, to a bunch of them in the US joined a pretty high level mastermind and uh, really at the end of the day I just thought to myself like people deserve better so I got to be better every single day and uh, uh, that was my mindset going into last year that's awesome so when the moment you don't have to share too much detail but I think it's just kind of interesting to anyone that's listened to this that runs their own business but okay you were in a partnership I'm guessing with a few people or maybe one of, at least one other person and you went your separate ways and then you had that hunger kind of come back to a level maybe you weren't at before because things are just the way they are and it's rolling along nicely was was the reasoning that it kind of went separate ways just because the transaction volume was down or was it more of a personal thing it's like okay it's just time to split yeah, just business decisions, right? Like, uh, you know, it, it, I would tell people, anybody who's thinking about getting into a partnership in any business, if you're an entrepreneur, remember, it's it's like a marriage, but even more extreme in some ways, because you it's crazy enough, you probably spend more time with your business partners than your actual spouse for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so you got to be aligned in your long term visions. And you know, the reality of, of life, even with people who have a spouse is that you're going to spend, you know, two or three years, and then things can change and, and your goals or, or objectives can change. And at the end of the day, if your partnership is is pretty financially motivated, or if there's a lot of it based on that, then all of those things can impact. And it wasn't always, all, obviously all about money or anything of that sure. nature. But man, it's it's just like I said, it's just like a, like a personal long term goal, vision, everything, all of it. We, um, we see this all the time in the real estate side of things where unless it's like a mother daughter team, right or like a family dynamic if it's two people that aren't blood related and they have 50 50 ownership of of the business never works out like steve have you ever seen that work out it always never at some out. moment in time blows up yeah, agents if you're listening out there and you have a 50 50 partnership <laughs> it's only a matter of time good luck to you <laughs> oh i love that <laughs> this guy's dark <laughs> yeah, well, well hey listen on that on that point though, what what I will say is a few things. You know, listen, I learned so much. I learned, you know, four years. I learned an insane amount, especially you know dealing with that type of transactions. We had a team we grew to about you know eighteen to twenty people. So it was mm -hmm. you know I I was able to build the baseline of of how to manage a larger team. Uh, how terrible I was as a leader. Um, how oh there goes my pug. Uh, where just 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 basically learn how to run an operation. And, you know, I, I started off, like I said, from scratch this year, I hired five, five people in two mm -hmm. weeks, um, built a, an entire system or CRM that we, we revised what we had did before. The first couple of months were a little bit foggy, used my, you know, personal money line of credit to, to fund everything for, for four months while we get up and running. And, and like I said before, the hunger was there, man. Like it was just a matter of saying everything I learned before is awesome, but let's, let's build on that. And there's so much truth to like, you know, we hear this constantly you know, all the mistakes that you made can be either something that you learn from, or they can be just mistakes, your choice. And man, it's, it's pretty incredible to see what someone can do, not just myself, but like what anybody could do when they actually take in what they learned, right? Now, as someone that's been in mortgages since 2011, is that what you said? Mortgages since 2011? Yeah. That's right. So you're one of the few mortgage brokers, Nolan's another one, that are optimistic in life and and have, you know, smiles going on in their faces. A lot of mortgage brokers I know in in real life are just like you, but all the ones we see on the internet seem to be very angry people. And I can't quite figure that out. What what is it about mortgage brokers versus realtors on the internet? Why are you guys so angry? 
Man, I've been trying to figure that out for the longest time, and I'm already taking YouTube slack for this. So I just, you know, I just started pushing and growing my YouTube channel last, you know, uh, three months, and I feel like a realtor right now. Everybody's hating on me all the time. I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? Um, you know, I, I, I think I just uh, adopted that approach towards the business and the industry out of, like I said before, almost necessity. And I'm like, there's, there's nothing but opportunity everywhere I see. I just, I see so much of it. I have to talk about it. And yeah, you got to acknowledge the, the dark times. You have to acknowledge what's happening and the negative things. But why do I have to rain on everybody else's parade? At the end of the day, there's enough negative shit going on in this world that we don't need to really bring it down. I'm dealing with people's numbers and finances. But if you break it all down at the end of the day, it's just like anything else, man. It sounds corny as shit, right? But glass half full, glass half empty. Let's have some fun while we're doing it, man. If I'm going to spend you know, 60 hours a week doing, you know, my business plus, you know, 10 hours a week creating content around it, because you're definitely not creating your content, in your normal work hours, for the most part, for most people, uh, I might as well enjoy what I'm doing and not look like a miserable asshole while I'm doing it. Right. I think we can all, plus, can I mean, I have it. a, I have a pug as my, my Instagram handle. You can't take that very seriously. Yeah. Uh, well, Steve, you're a little angry sometimes, but generally you're, you're a pretty optimistic guy. Is that fair? Realistically optimistic is probably Steve's definition. I mean, people in my way of being negative like to say they're just realistic, right? So that's how we, that's how I justify it. Um, but for the year, man, like, I don't, I don't get it. So I had the same as Utah. I, we by far didn't have our best year ever, but we had the exact same year as 2022. Which means you outperformed and- the market. Which means, yeah. I mean, sales are down whatever I think in our market, something like 10 or 13% or something. And then we ended up at the same number with the same, uh, you know, gross revenue for the company. So everything was fantastic as far as I'm concerned. And now like I'm sitting here and listing appointments, like within an hour of leaving this call. Right. So things are, are rocking and rolling. And it just, I think you're starting to see the big separation, um, between people that were floating, mm. uh, in our industry. And then, the difference now of, of the people that are starting to uh, excel. And I mean, Tom's there. I don't know if you know this yet. I don't know if Tom, you've put it out publicly on your Instagram or wherever Alex consumes, Alex consumes his content. But I mean, Tom, you crushed it last year. Like you're downtown. Uh, you're the guy now to with the target on your head in downtown Toronto. And if not even downtown Toronto condos or what whatnot, right? So I just think there's such an opportunity right now. And I think we put out a, a poll on the channel talking about like, what do you think this year is going to, you know, come with bunch of mortgage and, brokers answered it. It looks like, yeah. Right. But yeah. only 30, only 32% of people were positive about the upcoming year, which to me is a good, I guess it's a good number. It's one in three people is, is super happy about what's coming, but the rest of the people are probably, I don't know if they're people trying to get into the market or if there are competition or what's going on but i mean i i just see no i see no issues right now i see zero issues going on out there right now okay so can i bring up an issue can i break my issue because this is where alex is going to fill in the gap here the issue that now we've talked about this a lot i don't want to repeat myself too much but there's always going to be the next thing that we're waiting for that's going to stop the market right or that that things are going to crash and we're waiting for this thing to happen and and the YouTube comments like well not not enough time has passed we got to keep waiting for this to happen and the one that we're waiting for now is the mortgage renewals so Alex for you 
have you had people come back to you with a 2.5% rate and you got to renew at six? Like, what are they doing? What are these conversations like? Hey agents, a clean and easy to manage real estate website is a must. Go to realtyninja.com slash Tom right now and start your site totally for free and pay nothing until you launch. And then when it is your time to go live, you will save 20% off of your entire first year just for signing up at realtyninja.com slash Tom. Interesting conversation. Interesting because like it's what been six months and every single headline you see is talking about the renewal doom of 2024 and 2025 and what we're going to do. It's funny. I was I made a little green screen video about this a few days ago and I talked about this as well. Um, it, it's it, man. And we just talked about how mortgage brokers are negative. I think it's because the reality is people come at you with so much negativity because of stuff like this, and you have to really convert and flip people around. When we're talking about the idea of renewals and people coming in the door with two point five percent rates and going up to six percent rates, I, I guess there's a few pe- thing, uh, key pieces that I have to talk about. The first one is is you're right. There are people who are devastated when they see that. There are certainly people that I've talked to that are, are almost in tears when they look at their renewal papers and they're having a conversation with me and saying, hey, my payment just went up from $2,100 to $3,000. I don't think I can do this. My life has changed. Everything else has become more expensive. My grocery bills are from, you know, they used to be 500. Now they're a thousand bucks. You know, everything else has gone up in price. Like, yeah, that's a real thing. But here's the best part. You're talking to me right now. And let's talk about what this actually looks like. Well, the first thing is, is we all know this to be true, or at least I think Tom and Steve, you should, you probably know this at this point right now. When the client receives a renewal letter, that bank's renewal rates are typically 1% or a half percent above what the market is at any given time. And the sad reality is, is no, it doesn't matter how many times I scream this on the rooftop, uh, people still ignore the fact that their bank is not trying to, in fact, give them a cookie. Uh, they're trying to make money. Uh, crazy story, crazy theory, right? Oh my gosh. Uh, so so the first thing is, if, if, but just by having a conversation with us, they open up more doors because there's more lending options, there's different interest rates and there's things of that nature. The second thing is, and nobody likes to hear this, and this is more of a mental consideration. It, it, is, it is really something that people have to get a mindset around is you can re-amortize your loan. Most of these people are coming off five-year loans. Almost every one of them are coming off a five-year loan. And so they went from 25 to 20 years, or they went from 30 to 25 years. Most commonly, what I'm seeing is 25 to 20, or 20 to 15 in a lot of situations. So for anybody out there who doesn't know this, that's the amortization period remaining. And and so the first thing that we can look at is re-amortizing, not saying that's the first thing we do, but it's one of the first things we can look at is re-amortizing that loan. So we can stretch it for 20 to 30 years. We can stretch it from 25 to 30. Um, and so typically what I found is before we even get into recommending things, I'll usually just on the back end, just do a quick little calculation, see what would this do if I were to a find them a better interest rate or, you know, lending solution, B look at that. But I think even beyond that guys, like the first thing that people do is they just react or they respond and they get really nervous and they get really upset and they get really confused. And so I tell people, okay, there's like, there's a few different things that you need to do first and foremost. Number one, are you looking at your existing debt that you're carrying right now because the most uh, like most people that I talk to have consumer debt as credit cards lines of credit car loans you know RVs like covid happened and people went out and bought RVs and stuff like that and that's I'm not getting upset on people for doing that but that's eating up a chunk of their monthly uh, cash flow so how many of these people are actually looking at their real cash flow I'm not talking about budget just how much money are you spending every single month and where is it going most people don't and when you help people to understand that first of all it creates context to it Oh, okay. I'm actually spending $1,200 a month in unsecured debt, and my mortgage payment is going from 12 to 1800 1800 Maybe I should deal with this debt consideration first. 
So we can look at consolidation. And again, you get a lot of hate. I love my YouTube haters for this or Instagram haters. They go all over me. It's actually mostly YouTube and TikTok that like to hate on me. But sounds whatever. about right. Those that sounds the, about right. Those are the grumpy people are. Yeah. Um, and the right way. Oh, are you just telling people to keep wrapping up debt on debt on debt on debt? And like, no, man. What I'm saying is, if that is going to cause you that level of stress in your life, remember, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about appreciation, home values. Your home is probably going to appreciate at a substantially higher rate than you're going to be able to pay any of this stuff off. So let's just figure out a now situation, a now plan. Kind of like, um, you know, figuring out your you've you've gained a little bit more weight over the holidays than you wanted to do, and you got to figure out what to deal with it. It's not that you can't lose the weight again. It's just yeah. I told to you not to bring that up on this episode, man. That was that was an offline conversation. All right, those hot dogs, man. All right. Um, so <laughs> sorry to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. We're getting too serious for a minute there. Uh, okay. Uh, so, so, but are the people that you're talking to are they re-extending back? Is that basically? the option most people are taking? Okay, so again, early days right now, right? So a lot of these renewals are coming up 2024, 2025, but I, I'm, I'm thankful I'm getting the opportunity to talk to people pretty early. Here's what I'm saying. Number one, the offers that the people's uh, banks are offering are substantially higher than the market and with interest rates actually declining over the last month here, uh, they're even more to whack. Number two, they're not even considering amortization. So yes, many of them are uh, doing that. And they're open to the idea of doing that. If nothing more than just a short-term kind of like, let me just see what I can do and I'll increase my payments. Uh, the third thing is, uh, what I'm finding is that, and Steve just brought this up a second ago, uh, a lot of these folks are actually wanting to do something in real estate in the next two to three years. So they're still like, hey, you know, actually I would want to upsize or I would want to buy an investment. And so there's a conversation around restructuring, re-amortization from that perspective, like, hey, maybe I can get a HELOC or I can get some equity or something of that nature on the loan. So the funny thing is, is like, Tom, most people, yeah, they're re-amortizing. A lot of them are consolidating, um, but I'm not dealing with anybody. I haven't come across anybody that can't make their payments because there's no solution for them. Not a single person. No but one's like, yet been like, okay, I have to sell my house. There's nothing else no. I can do. You haven't had that conversation. And again, maybe, maybe, it's still too early for that conversation because we're going to find out in the next two years with all these mortgages coming up, you know, a certain percentage of people are going to be in that boat. Um, something I want to bring up and Steve, we love our polls on this podcast. We run polls to see what the people are thinking. And I always love looking at what YouTube said versus what Instagram said, because they're usually completely different results. So I asked people, cause I knew we were going to have this conversation and I wanted to bring this up. Now, this is the YouTube poll first. I said, how much equity do you have in your home? Now, I would assume that people answering this are answering on their primary residence, right? People probably aren't thinking about investment properties answering this question. On YouTube, 14% of people that answered, and there was 266 votes, so decent chunk of votes, said that they are negative equity right now, 14%. Okay, that's not nothing. So there's people that if their payment, I don't know their situation, if they're on fixed or variable, but their payment could go up and they could be even more underwater and have to sell. Zero to 30% equity, which makes sense. It's a typical down payment for somebody in, in today's market is 32% of people. 30 to 60% equity is 28% of people. 60 to 90%, 14% of people and 92 full ownership is 12% of people. So basically from that, there is more than half of the people that answer this have more than 30% equity in their property. So I guess the question is, having to sell is one thing, but if they sell, it's not like a bank sale. They're just going to list their property like a typical sale and no one will know any different. But 
But if enough of those happen, it brings inventory to the market, and that's when you could see pressure on prices. Is there anything, Steve, what do you think? Is that kind of what you would think with a poll like that? That there would be that many think, people in I negative? I think the people, the, the negative people are just going to say they're negative equity and they don't actually own. I, that's I, wonder, what I, <laughs> I wondered that too, actually. Um, but it but, uh, brings up a separate point where what I'm seeing is I've had some people that are moving around. They've got life circumstances happening right now and they've been considering, should I rent or should I buy again? And the craziest part that I'm seeing is they're, they're having trouble affording a mortgage. It's getting better right now, thankfully, over the last, let's call it three weeks, right? With, with uh, five-year fixed rates coming down. But when they're, they're saying, hey, I can't afford this according to the bank, but if I go into a rental, it's $500 more per month. Think about that situation. So you can actually own something at, let's say, $2,100 a month, or you can rent that two-bedroom condo for $2,600 a month. This is if they've and that's already inclusive owned of, property? of property taxes. This is just when they're moving from one property to another, right? Okay. So they have equity down, but they're not qualifying for that uh, extra, right? They're not qualifying for what they would have qualified for before because they're now at, let's say, seven and a quarter instead of five and a quarter. So they're actually in a spot where if they have to rent, they're going to be in a worse financial position than if they can buy and they can't qualify to buy. That's only if you already owned a property, though, not if you own nothing and you're just looking at the two options. Renting would still on yeah, they have, a monthly they have basis. Serious, okay. They have equity coming out of other properties. Yeah. Alex, you mentioned that the, the renewal letter you're getting from the bank probably isn't the best rate that you can get anyways. And... The government, as we've talked about before, they came in and saved us, and they said you can now change lenders, and we won't restress test you, but only if it's an insured mortgage, which doesn't help that many people. Now, so here's the question: Okay, I get that renewal letter, and I'm like, okay, I've listened to this podcast episode. I want to reach out to Alex. I want to figure out what's going on here. But then they go, they want to go do a new lender to get a better rate, but now they're being stressed again. And that's part of the problem too, right? Is some people, even if they wanted to, would have to take the higher rate just because they can't requalify. Are you having? Are you seeing that happen? Well, yeah, as you mentioned before, if you're an insured or insurable borrower, which uh, you know, living in the West Coast, uh, just outside of Vancouver, most people unfortunately don't fall under that uh, wavelength anymore. But if you are, you there are some loopholes to bypass the stress test. That's the first and most important thing that you just touched on right there. The second consideration is, um, yeah, I'll be really honest with you. Most of the people that I'm seeing or dealing with who are in a position where they're dealing with any concern over monthly payments, they're, they're not an insured or insurable mortgage. And we're looking at, like I said, a refinance, which is not insurable. So you do have to qualify. I would say in the height of the rate market there in the end of the summer towards like, um, I'd say August to beginning of October, as Steve referenced, that was probably the quote unquote, the worst of it, if you will like the hardest. Yeah, we had people in like in the best rates on a let's say a 3 year fixed were like 6.93 advertised rates. So even if we get them lower options, they have to qualify at almost 9% to get a mortgage. And there's no doubt that there were people that were unable to qualify with conventional options. So what happened is they got pushed into the alternative alternative space uh, if they had at least 20% equity in their properties, which these folks do. Like any anytime somebody's getting up to renewal, it, I haven't come across anybody who's who made it five years that didn't have at least 20% equity in the property. Not a single person who I've, I've talked to has, has had that problem. Um, but yeah, we're looking at going into the alternate space. But here's the wild thing about that. 
Um, in the alternate space, the lenders uh, on the quote unquote B side, as they like to call it, I don't even like calling the B side anymore because they're so close, is the interest rates were only a quarter or half point higher. So we're really? talking about the difference of a monthly payment. Yeah, like on a $500,000 loan, like these payments uh, on a mortgage were within 100 to $300, depending on the rates that they actually got. And we're like, hey, listen, the, the downside is you got a fee that you have to pay to do this. Um, but I have a lender that's willing to qualify you to borrow what you could actually, and they can they can make these payments. Because to Steve's reference point, these guys sold their houses and moved on the uh, into a condo or something like that. Uh, not only would they lose all their potential future equity, but they're also renting at a way higher rate. Like the rental of a house that they're going to own is going to cost them forty five hundred or five thousand bucks. But if we deal with this payment right now, that might be a thirty five hundred dollar, thirty three hundred dollar payment. Uh, in these terms. But really, at the end of the day, is like people vilify these alternative lenders or alternative side um, uh, products. But man, like rates were at 6.93 at TD Bank, but over here at, you know, Canadian Western Bank, which is is considered an alternative lender, uh, they were at 7.1 or 6.99. In fact, there was a period of time where it was actually the opposite, where you can get a three-year term that was lower than a conventional bank at an alternate lender. That's changed a little bit in the last few weeks as rates have come down. Um, but it's crazy how close those options were. And those were some solutions that people had to look at for a short period of time, no doubt. Because I think there's some confusion with people when you hear A lending, what you think in your mind is, oh, the big banks. Then you hear B lending, right? And then you hear private lending, which is the scary, you know, 14, 10 to 14% range. Uh, For the B lending, for the alternative stuff, why is it that their rates didn't go up? when everything else went up. Like, why was it? Because usually that gap was pretty big, right? It was like, in the days you can get a 3% at the bank, it was like 6% alternative, maybe, right? There was a bit of a gap there. Now it's pretty close. Well, they're securing their money in a similar way that a conventional bank is. And so the although, although the cost of funds is higher for them, because there's a higher risk associated with their, file, their, their mortgage uh, funds, uh, remember, they do charge a fee. So that fee can help to keep the interest rates down. That's typically 1% of the balance that the client owed. There can be higher fees. So let's call it 1% to 2%. For the sake of conversation, uh, 1% to 2% of the balance of the loan itself, depending on the total cost for the, for the client. Um, and that's another way that they can keep their costs down. But let, let's go. I want to go back to what you said there, because for for you guys or anybody else that's listening to this, you need to know, like, it's not really ABC anymore, right? It used to be kind of like A is your conventional. I qualify based on my income. B is like, you know, I maybe I need to use bank statements, equity, something like that to qualify. C is like your typical private, which today is is about eight, crazy enough, there's lent, private lenders that's still eight and a half, I don't know how, but hmm. eight and a half to, you know, 15% if the first or second mortgage. But it doesn't work like that anymore. I, I've been saying this for a few years. If, if anybody follows me on Instagram, is like, it kind of goes more like A plus A, A minus B plus B, B minus C plus. And that's really how it works. And I think what you're going to see happen in the next couple of years is these quote unquote B lenders, the prevalence of them being out there is going to be much higher as people take on alternative sources of income, whether it be side hustles or they're self-employed and they, they want to pay less taxes, or just because of situations like we just talked about where people are trying to qualify because of the stress test and they're coming up for renewal, but it doesn't make it substantially less affordable. And that's the key to all this, right? The affordability is the only thing that people really care about that I've noticed at the end of the day, at least the average person. Um, okay. So my next question, this is a little bit inside baseball here. So I apologize to the viewers, but I just want your take on this. So as a mortgage broker, okay, you get an application from somebody and then you have the lenders that you think would be be perfect for that person, right? Based on what they're looking for, what is the best opportunity for them? And you can go to the M- MCAP uh, or yeah, MCAP and there's a few others, or you can go to TD, Scotia, BMO are the ones that lend from the big banks. Is that correct? 
Are you just wondering where we can access funds? Yeah, no, but so what I'm saying is though, RBC and I believe CIBC are all internal, right? They don't lend to mortgage brokers. Didn't RBC just buy HSBC? So is that taking one option away from you guys? What, what Can you break that down for me? Man, there's a lot there. Okay, so in the broker channel, as far as the big banks are concerned, TD and Scotia have been the longest supporters. Uh, HSBC joined back a couple of years ago to select brokerages. Uh, BMO is actually joining again in 2024. So they're just coming back to the channel. Okay. CIBC and our CIBC will lend through like, we're not talking about commercial here. So let's get back into, I guess, just residential. So sure. residentially, they have their own sales force. RBC has their own sales force. RBC has a lion's share of uh, mortgage funding. They push the hardest. There's a uh, whole uh, plethora of things going on right there. But yes, they just bought HSBC and nobody knows whether or not they're going to continue to keep HSBC in the broker channel. So as a broker, will we be able to access? I don't know. A side note on that, for anybody who likes mortgage competition, uh, you know that, that was a real big loss for Canadian consumers right there, losing HSBC and getting them devoured by uh, RBC. Because HSBC, traditionally speaking, although they're an awful bank to work with from a, a mortgage perspective, um, it doesn't matter because they advertise lower interest rates. And just for that reason alone, they keep the, the bottom down on some of these big banks. Now, you know, you lose them and they're going to RBC, which traditionally has controlled a big market share. And they like to be competitive in, in they like to play the game a lot, that bank in particular, like the, hey, go get a lower rate, we'll offer you this back and forth sort of situation. Um, but a lot of consumers are going to lose that. And and these big banks, they don't care to compete with the online lenders. They don't compare to comp- care at all to compete with the True Norths or any of these kind of like, um, you know, online uh, butlers or anything of that nature of the uh, the nation. They're just basically, hey, you're a bank or you're not a bank. And that's kind of how they look at it. And they pop their chest out, so to speak. But to get, I guess to, we went on a little bit of a tangent there. But to answer your question, so you've got the big banks, you've got the monoline lenders, which uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard, you mentioned MCAP. MCAP is, is uh, they, they own the largest market share of non-bank lenders in the country. So they have MCAP and RMG, plus they have two of those alternate lenders under their arm. And the wild thing about this, I tell people all the time, I'm like, you, you get a bank like um, TD Bank, for example, we talk about uh, mortgage funding. So TD Bank actually outsources all of their behind the scenes work. So all of their funding to a non-bank lender called First National. So First National uh, is a, um, a what they call a monoline, which is they focus primarily on mortgage funding, whether it's commercial or residential. And uh, they're, they're um, to make it less complicated, behind the scenes funding and compliance and, and underwriting and so forth, uh, they do the work for TD, TD Mortgage Solutions. And so I think for all those folks who are concerned about these quote unquote micro companies or companies they've never heard of, or I hear the word private lender, they shouldn't be concerned because if they're doing the back end for these companies, and I can't remember who signed on BMO, but I feel like it was MCAP, um, then, then I think consumers shouldn't be concerned about these companies other, or either way. They fill a great gap for consumers. But there could be a slight worry in the air that if one of these big ones eats up another one like RBC did with HSBC, then it's taking away competition for for, for rates at least, right? No question. Yeah, no question. At least to advertise. Like it, it's like anything else, right? Like um, whether the, the, the uh, consumer in the end actually benefits by getting that rate option that they were looking for, just by having it out there as an option, it does force RBC, if you will, to, to push things down or any of the other lenders. Now, if that option's eaten up or devoured, which I feel very confident that HSBC will, will not offer the same type of competition, nor will they be probably in the broker channel in the next 18 months, um, mm. then, then the consumers are losing out for that reason. Man, I, I've got so many friends down in the US and it's so funny when they talk to me and, and we, we discuss like how lending works up here and that, that's like an hour long conversation on its own. 
Um, but when I explain to them how the, these big five banks essentially control, you know, 50% of mortgage lending in our country, their minds are just blown. Like how, how is, how is the government let this happen? How does, how is, how does it even work? Canada and, loves uh, a good monopoly. <laughs> CR Airlines, <laughs> there's not that many options. Yeah, well, I try to explain to them, yeah, our government actually supports this. And then the next thing is just, what? Do they laugh at us? Or are they, are they just, they can't comprehend just it? Confused. Or? Just they're confused by all of it. None of it makes any sense. What, you guys can't do 30-year mortgages? What, you have to pay a $35,000 penalty to exit a five-year fixed loan? Like, what? What are you talking about? Like, this is, is mind-numbing. What, you can't access people's bank statements online? They have to go and gather their documents and NOAs and... Well, you say good or bad, but we're, we're in the dark ages as far as mortgage lending is concerned compared to what happens down there. That's for sure. You know, we should do Steve. We'll play a, we'll play a new game on this show. This just came to my mind. Okay, Alex. So, so on the spot here, the mortgage Ooh. charter that the federal government came out with was a bunch of nothingness and things that were already Correct. in place. So we talked about that when we had Nolan on the show. What if there was a real mortgage charter that was actually going to make a difference for Canadians? Could we think of some solutions here, some things that could actually be put in place that would help things and not just like beat around the bush on this issue? Do you have anything that comes to mind? For tenant, landlord, or homeowner insurance policies, go to squareone.ca slash the Tom Story Show. Use the link in the description. Save $20 when you start your free quote right now. Oh, where do you want me to, like, do you want me to just rapid fire? Or <laughs> yeah, let's go. Just whatever like, comes to your mind, let's okay. go. Well, let's, let's look at uh, this stress test here. Do we really need this type of stress test in place for everyone, specifically if they're renewing and specifically uninsured mortgages? So what, what is one of the easiest things that they could bring in right away? Stop stress testing uninsured mortgages, uh, especially on renewals or transfers, not just insured options. Mm-hmm. That, can we make that a, like a, that's like a softball. Let's throw that one out there. I don't want to take them all right there, but that, that's, that's one. That's, that's so that's number one. That we can yep. throw out there. Go ahead, Steve. I feel like you got a big one right there. Um, I'm not a, I don't hate the stress test. I think it's done a lot of good. Um, I don't, I think it's doing bad right now just because there have been companies out there that are giving their own clients really high rates because they know they can't go elsewhere. So I think that's been the issue with the stress test, but I don't hate it as a whole. Does it need to be 2% higher than seven and a half percent? I don't think so. Um, that's kind of silly. Um, I mean, the biggest one, which would I can see never happening, uh, would be I think they should cap all penalties at three months interest, period. You know, mm. All penalties. So the five-year thing, like I should be able to restructure maybe, or if I'm not going to do that, yeah, you need to offer a 25-year or 30-year product. Problem is if they mm. offered a 25 or 30-year product, it would be at 15%, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're just not interested in that at all. Um, but that was also brought in for consumer protection right? Mm-hmm. So you think about mm-hmm. it when we have a five-year product, if rates were going down, it would be predatory from that time's point of view to keep someone locked into a 30-year mortgage. But if there is no fees to break it, then that kind of solves that issue. Yeah, but there is no fees over five years, right? Like if you go into a 10-year mortgage right now and you do your first 60 months, there is no fees to break it. You have to pay the three months interest still. Yeah, you, you have to pay out the three months interest at least. Uh, that's a good one, Stephen, and, and I, I agree with that statement in 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 many ways. So, just referencing going going down south, if you guys are looking down south, so you pay fees on the front end on their mortgages, like I referenced with the alternate lenders here. 
Um, you pay three fees on the front end, which is what you can negotiate and, and sort out, but you don't pay fees on the back end. So you can exit and refinance. And that's why, you know, during the years 2020 and 2021, and then beginning of 2022, all my US friends were, were shoveling it in like cereal, like nonstop, because everybody could renew into a 30 year fixed at 2%. And it wouldn't cost them a penny to do that other than the upfront cost. And so they can renegotiate at a later time. But yeah, you know, the stress test, okay, it's not that the stress test is inherently bad. The idea, the concept is good. It's just that like anything in life, if it's not working, let's adapt it. Let's change it. Clearly, it's not working for people who are at renewals. Like, why am I forcing a family? Like, okay, we talk about renewal stories. So I mentioned to you, there were a few people that were between that August to October timeline that he had to adjust their finances and go into an alternate lender. This family should not be in an alternate lending perspective because purely because of the stress test, because I had to qualify them at almost 9% when they could make their payments and they were making their payments before uh, in order just to put them into a better financial situation. Should that be required? What are your thoughts on that? I uh, just want to share something quick because I don't know what my thoughts are on that. I, I think I, I like I, there's just so many things. I just want to share something with you. So I was one of the very, very lucky people that had a mortgage coming up to renew and I renewed. I took a three-year fixed in October of 2023, the worst possible time in the last 20 years that you know what the rates were. Okay. Now, so here's my suggestion. I think the lump sums at the at the end of every year of your mortgage shouldn't be capped at 10%. I think you should be able to put down however much money you want. I think that's ridiculous uh, because that would have really helped me if I could have put down more if I was in the position to do it. But then I went out for lunch with my main mortgage guy here in Toronto a week ago. And we were sitting there and I was going through my experience and he was like, listen, man, because he's with one of the big banks and he wasn't doing my renewal, right? He was just trying to, because he, he, they're not the ones that do it. And then he's like, well, yeah, I was able to get someone a three-year fixed at this rate. And I stopped and I looked at him. I was like, dude, what the hell? That's a full point lower. I immediately regret every decision that I've made here. And Steve's going to laugh. And it's been an ongoing joke on this podcast. I've been the variable guy and Steve's the fixed guy. And the moment that I locked in, rates were probably at the highest they've ever going to be. But if I had the opportunity right now, it actually it, it wouldn't make sense yet based on if I had to change my rate right now, the penalty wouldn't make sense to switch it. But if it was three months interest, I would break my mortgage today and lock in a new rate tomorrow. But I don't have that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, first of all, get a quote on that penalty. Second of all, that's why you shouldn't be dealing with a bank guy. No offense to your bank guy. Um, Fair. But that, that, it's a true point. Like That's well, more hey, of a relationship like thing, not a... It's not my, my allegiance is not to the bank, it's to the person, right? It, it's, it's, it's your point. And, and, and the thing is like, yeah, it's nothing against uh, those guys. They're, they're meant to sell a mortgage product and that's what they do, right? Um, but to your point, Tom, and, and that, that story that you just shared is what happens every day. And so let me give you an example of what's happening. Or, what, what, you know, we, we have a client right now who came to us from uh, Big Blue RBC. And uh, I, we, I try to start with this, like, is this client just purely trying to play against the market? Or are they looking for someone that's actually going to advise them? There's a long conversation around this. So I'll keep it relatively focused here. And the reality is in, in discussing the conversation, it, the, the, the conversation with the client went like this to the bank. Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Bank, um, I'd like to renew my mortgage. I just got this renewal letter. Uh, okay, great. Come in for an appointment. Client goes in for an appointment, takes time off work, gets there. Um, okay, Mr. And Mrs. Client, here's your rate offers right here. Would you like to do 30 uh, sorry, not 30. Would you like three year, two year, five year? I think you should go with a three year right now. Here's your rate offers. Here's your payments. Client looks up and says, well, um, how do I make this decision? I don't know what to do right now. Often, well, the three year is the best rate. That's what everybody's doing right now. 
Um, it, 30 minutes later, he leaves his appointment frustrated, stressed out, and uh, confused as to what to do. Talks to the guys at work, gets sent over to me, and you know, within a 10-minute conversation, Mr. Client, tell me a little bit about what your plans are in your, your, your next two to three years when it comes to your house. Tell me a little bit more about this. I don't want to bore you with it, but there's a list of 10 to 15 questions that we go through to understand. He said, you ask me more questions in five minutes than my bank asked me, asked me in 30 minutes. And well, the best part about this is not only did we offer him a better terms and interest rate, we were 1% to your point, Tom, and I'm sorry to, to like, you know, pull that. Do uh, it. Push, the, the people are going to, the commenters are going to love it. Just push in. Yeah. Well, listen, man, like this bank offered him like a 6.94 rate and we just got him in and we just got it actually yesterday. I saw the email come in 5.41. Um, where, where that bank was advertising, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, listen, at the end of the day, it wasn't even about that. He, he called me up right away. He's like, dude, I don't even care if it was a rate at this point, I we're going wherever you're taking me. Um, but the point is this, it, that took me a 15 minute phone call. We've talked a few times since then team did the processing, took everything on and he made it clear to me. He wrote me a pretty lengthy email. It's a, it wasn't just about the rate. It was that you didn't take the time to ask right. me any questions to understand what I'm even doing. And you move back to that point that we brought up earlier. Like this guy actually, he, he sees a future in owning more real estate. He didn't even know that was a possibility. Now we actually have a plan in place. We can do, 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 do. So we set up a HELOC for him as well. So on top of that, not only we do that, we set up HELOC and now he's got a plan that he wants to go and buy more real estate in the next 12 months. So, um, I don't know, long story short, uh, yeah, it's a crappy feeling for somebody to walk in there and get that, uh, that offering, but that's a normal experience, man. I think I got to find out what my penalty is. If I, I'm only, I'm only three months in, but if but I should look at the there, numbers, there could be a strategy though. And I think I'd have to look into this further. Um, and Alex might be able to point it out, but there is something that happens when the rates go down. I think you want to hit where right around about 1%. Cause if it starts dropping lower than that, your interest differential is going to be ginormous. So you may actually, if you were trying to go down and wait for it to go down again, you would want it to do it within that, say if you were at, I don't know, 639, you would want to try and do it before the rates hit 539 to minimize your penalty. And by saying that, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I have heard that that is a strategy that could that can work. I like the way you explained it. It sounded so scientific and focused there. Um, to, yeah, to, to Tom's point, and this is off the air, you know, maybe we have a separate conversation on this one day, but um, yeah, there are certain times that make more sense. It's based on the posted rate, the discount that you got when you got it, and a period of months remaining plus the period of months. They make it so complicated that you have to call and say, and here's the crazy thing is you could start the conversation with somebody and and then within a month oh my penalty just went up from five grand to 25 grand by time i want to renew um so there are certain timelines steve i like have something else for the charter okay how Let's about every time i log into my bank account i get to see what my penalty is in dollars right there on the screen how about that how about you great. give full transparency here's a transparency measure we can make because i know uh, Osfi listens to the show for sure. What you do is you make it mandatory that every communication I have with my bank about my mortgage has to have my penalty printed on it in some way. That would actually be something that would create transparency because trying to figure out your mortgage penalty is definitely harder than trying to figure out the theory of relativity. <laughs> so, so we have adjust the stress test. Take away the big penalties. Let Tom's story make lump sum payments more than 10%. Okay. 
But most uh, most lenders do allow more than ten percent. Most okay, allow fine, most are fine. thirteen, but, okay, but, nineteen, or 20%. okay. But make it up to fifty percent of the mortgage. Not that I could afford that, but yep. okay. And then number four was what we just talked about. Is there a fifth one we can wrap this up with a bow? Anything else? Well, yeah. I mean, I'd make a recommendation. This isn't so much a, a charter, but I would throw a, a bonus on there, especially adapting to where things are at right now. I think we need to go back to thirty-year uh, insured mortgages, thirty-year um, options on amortization. I mean, yeah, we talk about adjusting uh, to the times. Like, let's let's go. It, it, for all those naysayers or people who are concerned, sure, call it ten percent down to get to thirty years, whatever. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the biggest challenges is people getting into the marketplace who don't have support from family or friends, and that five years could make a big difference for people getting into the market. And these aren't people who are blowing the market up, and these aren't speculators, and these aren't people who are. Uh, causing buying rental properties because they're buying them for themselves because it's an insured mortgage. But there should be some kind of a guideline where people can, first time buyers, maybe first time, you know, in four years, whatever you want to call it, they can use a 30 year amortization. I think to me that that is something that uh, should uh, take place as soon as possible because the biggest group of people that are, that are is struggling the most to get it is to, the first time buyer. It's the first time buyer and specifically the first time buyer who doesn't have support from family. I want to throw in another one, uh, and this is a conversation I think that needs to be had. Um, it was actually one of the top comments on my 2024 predictions video. Somebody said, I predict that 2024 is the year of more mortgage fraud than ever before. I'm like, well, great prediction. Now, uh, is is verifying income on mortgage documents, could there, like you talked about it, like the fact that you can't just go into the bank statements and look, is there is there some system we could we could do with the government with CRA that we can 100% verify income that these fraudulent letters and all this crap going on comes to an end because that's obviously something to some level that has happened in Canada. We've seen the CBC marketplace thing a year ago. We've seen all these things. Have you seen phony documents? Like, is there a way to verify it better that this crap doesn't happen? Man, I could go on for a while on this. Like, we'll keep it not angry unless Steve wants to get angry here. Um, but, uh, in short, I think he's thinking it's about coming. it. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Um, okay. again, another thing that we're behind, uh, compared to the U S and the amount of mortgage fraud that we deal with up here. So here's a crazy thing. First of all, there's most mortgage fraud is at the bank, at the bank level. Uh, RBC was just fined for it. CIBC was so, fined uh, yeah. this year for it. Um, I get calls not as frequently as perhaps I used to, just because I don't take in a lot of random people reaching out from unknown sources. But um, I get calls relatively frequently that ask me the question, hey, uh, do you do this? And they try and go backwards. My friend did this or my friend knows a guy at the bank who did this sort of thing. Um, and I know a few folks who've worked at the banks for you know, eight to 10 years who recently switched over to the broker channel and said, no, no, man, it's just like every single day. Every single day we see this stuff come through. Oh, I don't do it. But you know, these guys over here do it. It's just like an unspoken rule. So to answer your question, like, yeah, there's no doubt that they should put in better systems. Although knowing our government, it will probably cost, you know, $50 billion and take eight years to put it in place. Um, but it is something that is uh, prevalent. It is a consideration. And it's something that uh, I would argue isn't um, talked about enough or or shared enough. I mean, as a, as a think about it as like a brand new real estate agent coming into the industry. If you don't have a team that you start on, or a good brokerage that you start on, you're, you're screwed, right? And trying to write a contract and trying to understand what's right, what's wrong, what's left, what's up, that sort of thing. It's the same thing in the mortgage world. You know, whether it's somebody who walks into the bank the first day, like they're, they're not licensed, first of all. The people that are taking mortgages that walk into the bank, they're not licensed. Uh, they don't hold a license. 
the bank holds the license. Which the is mortgage specialists at the banks don't have a mortgage broker's license. They are not okay. I actually that. I knew that for one of the banks. I didn't know it for the other one. Okay, so that's across mm -hmm. the board. Interesting. Across the boards. So if you go into any of the big bank, oh, it doesn't matter. Any bank, any credit union, anywhere, they can sell you a mortgage uh, under the bank's license. So you could be under TD or Scotia or whatever. It doesn't matter, and they can sell it to you under there. Um, now, does that make a huge difference in terms of education and regulation? Uh, some would argue no. Some would argue yes. I think it depends on which province that person's in. BC has different rules in Ontario. Ontario, traditionally speaking, the, the bar to get in is is really low uh, from a mortgage agent perspective. Uh, it's getting better. BC is definitely putting in more strict guidelines. They're increasing the cost of regulation, the cost of licensing, that kind of stuff to get into the market. But back to your point, or my point, the, the reality is, is they can sell you anything and any product, but they, even if they did it on accident, they, a lot of these guys just don't know what to look for right. in the mortgage space, uh, whether it be a, a sales specialist to the bank or a broker. I mean, they're all just as bad. And so I think what you probably see is there's probably a percentage of, of files that get uh, pushed through just based on the assumption that they're, they're fraudulent alone. But here's where the big difference is. And this is why I say it's more of a bank issue than a, than a broker issue from what I've seen. Only from what I've seen, again, it's just anecdotal feedback, is that in the broker space, I've noticed that the underwriters that most of the lenders we work with, they they have an extreme level of diligence. And it's only gotten more and more diligent over the last couple of years. They will nitpick every single dollar penny to the penny and look at it. And of course, things can probably still slide through, but it is very difficult. Whereas uh, I don't know this on the banking channel, but I understand that it seems to be a lot less documentation a lot less, um, a lot more can get through the pipe and there's just a lot more exceptions being made on a regular basis. So take that for what it is. One thing that so gave me- So fraud going up? Go I ahead. I hope not. I hope not. I was just gonna say, one thing that gave me a little bit of certainty in this is going through the process myself. Now, other than giving the bank the naming rights of my next unborn child, they they asked for everything, everything. I'm like, yes. guys, like, look, yes. look. It's right here. What what do you need? Now, part of it was because I had incorporated, they, they finally let us incorporate here in Ontario a few years ago. So I paid myself less personally and I had to show them all the business stuff, yada, yada, yada. But like, they like, I was like, I'm an A plus client. Just give me my mortgage. You're like, not so fast. So they actually gave me some level of confidence that I don't think, I think if people that are getting away with the fraud know exactly what they're doing, <laughs> like they're very specific and I don't know what they're doing, but how they're getting it past there. Um, Steve, I got, I got a question. I want to end the podcast with, with Alex, but before I go to that, do you got any thoughts on, on the mortgage fraud side of things? We, we've talked about this before, but yeah, I mean, I've never, when I saw that, no, I mean, we did a special episode specifically on that, um, news story. Um, I had never considered it would have been done that way. Um, I think it's much more common that it's done kind of how Alex kind of said like the exception that is made for that one individual client <clears throat> there are those exceptions generally are not made through the broker channel is my understanding and they are made quite often for um the better client uh let's say with one of the big banks they'll make that exception for um so that i can definitely see but then then you have to ask okay well maybe we should make that exception because that person does have a, a high net worth or whatever, and they do have a long standing relationship or they do have a ton of investments with the, with the bank. So are they really going to default? Probably not. It, we are in a space now where though 
like you used to think like Tom did. I'll go to my bank. My bank's not going to like, look how good of a customer I've been. Obviously, they're going to get it done for me. And there are situations where that doesn't happen anymore. Like my estimation of somebody like, uh, or a, a bank like Scotiabank and like TD is they're way more interested now in the new business hmm. than they are keeping the old business. And this might just be my perception, but BMO and RBC are the opposite of that. They're still kind of old school. They're still kind of like, you know, this person's been with us for 20 years. Let's bend the rules a little bit because they've been such a good customer. So allegedly, I don't know which one allegedly. of those is. Allegedly. Okay, fine. But I don't know which one of those is the better business model, right? Because all of the big telecom companies are going to, who cares if you've been my customer for 20 years? I just want the new guy. Here's and an iPad. Yeah, totally. And then um, you would think that if I've been a customer of yours for 20 years, that I should get some sort of special privilege, but that's not really the way a lot of business works anymore. So I don't think it's a right or a wrong. I just think it's the realities of the two different business models. This episode of the Tom Story Show is brought to you by the Story Team at Royal LePage Signature in Toronto, Ontario. Although he's here on the recording with me right now and I don't like saying nice things about him to his face, Tom and his team, well, they are probably your best pick if you are looking to buy or sell residential real estate in downtown Toronto. Let's face it, probably the city of Toronto itself. Tom, make a strange face if that's wrong. That is correct. That is correct. All right. We are good to go. So if you are looking for one of, if not the top agent in downtown Toronto for your residential real estate needs, condos, semis, mm -hmm. detached, if you're looking to upsize or downsize, give Tom and his team a call. And Tom, how would they get in touch with you? I think the best thing would be go to the first link in the description uh, of this episode and you can book a call with me at a time that works for you and uh, we'll go over all the information you need and, and see if we can be of service. And I recommend if you are listening to this from across the country and you're either moving to Toronto or if you're an agent outside of Toronto and you have a client moving to Toronto, go ahead and book a call with Tom because he would love to take your referral as well. That is the story team at Royal Page Signature in Toronto, Ontario. He's a pretty good guy. He knows what he's doing. Just don't tell him I said so. Tom, the last part we need to do before the end. Uh, this communication is not intended to breach cause any breach. What's that? That was <laughs> oh, you want me to say it? <laughs> I don't know what the word is. It I don't even know what the words are. This communication is not intended to cause or induce breach of any existing agency agreement. And now, back to the show. There's a few key points that you brought up right there. And the first one is the banks have definitely started to adapt their, their, their way that they focus on obtaining new customers. Scotiabank is a perfect example. In the beginning of 2023, they, they literally put themselves out of the mortgage market. They had no interest in obtaining new business. They had gone so deep the previous two years that they were like, no, we need to reconsider the way everything works. And for the first three to four months, and that's a huge loss for anybody who does who, who owns real estate as an investment specifically, uh, or anybody in the broker channel, that's a huge hit, right? Um, they're a great bank and a great lender, traditionally speaking. And well, they, when they came back, they said, okay, great, we're going to start to offer you low rate offers. If you accept another Scotiabank product. So you have to take a, you know, whatever it is, TFSA or GIC or 
it doesn't matter. There's a variety of different products that you have to sign up for. And so they were it's smart in many ways because they said, listen, we're not making a ton of money on these mortgages. The mortgages for most of these banks are loss leaders anyways. They get you in the door. And then when they get you in the door, they're going to sell you on product X, Y, Z. Steve's point is valid. Uh, some of the banks, and and I would say up until the last couple of years, Steve, you were correct that you would have seen RBC take that approach. But I've also even noticed a shift there where they're trying to uh, take, and again, I don't know this other than just my experience. Uh, I've also known a shift uh, talking to clients where many more of the RBC clients were in the past, they would just always go back to the bank. They're starting to walk outside the doors and say, hey, is there something else out there? And I think there's something to be said about consumer sentiment and consumer just general awareness. They are starting to understand that, okay, well, I have to requalify anyways, might as well look around and see what my options are and what might be available there for me. And who's going to get the exceptions to your point? Typically only those quote unquote high net worth people. But when I'm starting to get calls from those quote unquote high net worth people, and even they're starting to say, I'm not getting these exceptions anymore. It's kind of like, whoa, welcome to the real world. Everybody now has to qualify under the same set of guidelines every single time. And I think that is what shakes up the marketplace. And these are the types of conversations that can be the most frustrating or challenging, especially on our end of the world, where we have to explain to people, hey, no longer can you just write down, I have a job and I have you know $500,000 in my bank account. You now have to actually provide, as Tom mentioned, uh, your kid's birth certificates. I'm not joking when I say that. You have to provide your kids' birth certificates if you're using child care benefit income, which you can at many of the banks, right? You have to provide you know, three years of T2s and T1s and T4s and all these different things. And so you definitely, it changes the way that you you do things. But here's what I say. Let's get back to the positive real quick here because let's get on some good stuff here. Um, I'll say a few things. Number one, I think in the last year, what it's done is shaken out a lot of the branches in, in a good way and a bad way, but it's shaken a lot of the branches. And I think what that's done is it's exposed a lot of the weaknesses in the real estate market, including things like we've talked about, like speculation assignments, new new builds, contracts, people coming from various places and quote unquote parking money, which I don't seem to be a big issue, but it's shaken it out and said, hey, like, these aren't the primary issues that we're dealing with. The primary issues that we're dealing with are actually could be dealt with really easily internally speaking. And most of the problems that we're hearing about on the news, there are real solutions for. We just talked about high rates, renewals, all these things coming up. There are options for people. There are solutions for people. You just got to be willing to seek it out. And I think that's where channels like what you're doing right now is a great service because at the end of the day, people actually can hear, holy shit, I have a choice. Holy shit, I have an option. Wow, there's things that are out there for me. Um, you know, people talking about right now getting in, why would you get into the real estate market this time when we just went through this insane experience? Well, I'm telling people, well, I just got myself pre-qualified because I think looking at the market, there's even more excuse or reason looking forward in the next three to five years that, um, that the market is just going to continue to be more and more inaccessible for people, which, uh, this whole charter of rights just basically proves. So find a way, get away. There's always an option. There's always a solution. And there's always people out there who are willing to help out, right? I also think too, just to to wrap it up with the mortgage fraud side of things, I'm not going to go negative again, I promise. But there, there's levels to crime, right? There's levels to crime that senses that people get. All fraud is bad. Let's make that very clear. Mortgage fraud could be falsifying documents. It could be also just saying, I'm buying this for my for my own use. And then you rent it out day one because you didn't put as much money down. Like there's, there's different levels to this. It's all bad. But uh, I'd love if there'd be a way to, to clean this to clean this up. Um, okay, I waited till the end on this. I'm sorry, Alex, but I want to bring it up. And I promise we talk about it. I know me and Steve have had this conundrum in our lives as well. You go to parties and people ask you what you do for a living. And we say real estate, and then you get stuck in a conversation. I have to explain things. You say mortgage broker, but that is not who we are at our core. That is what we do. That is what we are good at. And we have a passion for it. But I know that you've kind of taken another path where it's not just 
mortgages, but it's overall financial freedom and money. So we'll go a little long here if we have to, but has your lifestyle, perception, whatever words you want to use towards money changed in the last little bit? Can you share a bit about that? 100%, dude. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. I, I think to your point, exactly. The moment that you say mortgage broker or realtor, people run the other direction typically, uh, or they get angry about interest rates. So one of those two things, or they hit you. Um, thank God, not too much hitting lately. So uh, yeah, so what do we really do? We help people create wealth through financial freedom. And, and there's so many opportunities available to people through these uh, different levers that are available to us. But it's more than just a mortgage. Like, really, that is just one tool that's available to us. I think that we deal, we are in a society right now where most people have this unfortunate um, attitude towards money because we were never brought up or taught about how money actually works and how it can benefit you and how essentially it's, it's to use the word abundant, it's always there. There isn't always an opportunity for people to create the life that they want to. Instead, we live in a society of people who are look at money as a bad thing, as something that's scarce, that's not readily available, that you can't get more of, that um, you need to cling on to. And what I've noticed in even changing my own mindset over the last couple of years around this and still continuously working on it is, is it's, it's not a significant change for most people. It's just change. What I mean by that more specifically is it's not out of touch for someone to change their life and the way that they feel about money. And you don't have to count everything down to the last penny. You just need to start by thinking about things differently and building a baseline. And what I mean by a baseline is get the primary education and understand how things work. When you can understand how things work, and I know this may sound simplistic, but it is. Start to understand how the mechanics of money work. Under, ask questions. Why does a mortgage work this way? How does appreciation work? How does compound interest work? How can I spend and invest to earn? What is my time worth? The number one thing that I try to teach people in our industry, you know, new brokers, new realtors, is value your time more than anything else. And I think I kind of went on a little bit of a roadmap among a lot of different points there, Tom. But in talking to you last time, it's something that's really personal and important to me is to, to have conversations with people that empower them and put them in a situation where they feel like they have a better future and they're not restricted uh, and money isn't choking them off. Is there any place that you went to to get yourself in the position that you understood it better? Is there YouTube channels you watch? Is there books you've read that are like, this is my go-to, every person has to read, like whether it's Think and Grow Rich or whatever book it is that you would say, if someone is starting from scratch and they've yeah. lived their whole life just kind of going through it and they finally realize, oh shit, I'm X age old. If I keep doing this, this isn't going to get me to where I need to be in retirement. You can okay, hire so Steve to yell at you for 10 minutes. We can, we can do that as a service. <laughs> Yeah, we could go for that. Let's go. Um, listen, I don't try to purport to be someone's uh, personal money coach. What I try to do is I try to bring to my conversation a better um, mindset around, like I said, money and help to educate people around the areas that they don't understand. I, if someone says to me, hey, I want to learn about stocks, I say, I'm not your guy. I'm not going to teach you about stocks, but here's a couple places that you could look or here's some things to look at. I mean, first and foremost, let's start with the easy stuff. You could literally search up anything that you want to learn on YouTube, anything, type anything in the bar, anything. I try, anytime you don't know how to do something, go to Google. Everything that you want to learn is on there and it's readily available to you. Let's go back and answer your question. Was there one thing? I, if people ask me this question, I said there wasn't one specific thing 
that really changed um, the way that I thought. I think it was an evolution over time. I mentioned to you earlier in this podcast, um, at the very beginning, I said, what was something that I did this year that put me in a better state that I was willing to put in or that I was that I put myself into? And that was being around other people who were achieving much greater success than I had ever dreamed about doing yeah. and listening to the way that they speak about how they, A, invest, B, what they do with their time, C, uh, what they value, and D, just the way that they overall think about it. It started to allow me to think differently about how I communicate with people. So take that back into the conversations that I have with folks on a daily basis and the questions that I ask most people, it usually comes back to like, why? Why do you feel this way? How do you feel this way? And how many people do you think that you've come across, either either of you guys, how many people have you come across where you actually ask the question, why, around something money related where they're actually comfortable to answer that question? I mean, rare. Almost never. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Like if you question why someone does something with their money, they get offended, they get upset, and they get angry. Why is that mm -hmm. the case? It's we'll like make, talking about sex in Canadian culture. It, you're like, you can't talk yeah. about money. You can't talk about sex or anything of that nature and oh, pretty big parts of our lives, yet we can't have conversations. And so let's go back to your original question, Tom. What would you do? I would start to question why. Why do I do things this way? Why do I feel this way? Why am I spending my money on these things? Why don't I have this or why do I have this? And when you start to retrace these things back, it really becomes less about this like thing of money and more about what you actually do with the time that you have. And that turns into so much more. Like think about the time that we're spending right here today and the time that someone's spending listening to this. They have a choice to do almost anything yet. They're, they're doing this because they want to listen and learn. And I think um, it all goes back to that conversation of just emotion. There's typically, listen, let's go back to the most basic thing. When we come up through school, we're taught about social studies, which is, I don't know what it is anymore. Uh, we're taught about uh, woodworking, which is great. Like nothing wrong with that. We're taught about, you know, chemistry and math yeah. and, and all the important things, right? But has anybody ever taught a kid, uh, A, what to do when they receive their money? Probably not. Maybe their parents, maybe the book that they got in, in, in the bank, the bank gives them a little book and says, deposit your money in this account. And this is what happens. Did anybody teach a kid when you put money in a bank account, it actually loses money? Nope. Did anybody teach someone that when you actually take money and you put it into investment that you actually have more later, but there's something called delayed gratification? Probably not. Were we ever taught about compound interest when it relates to our personal finances? I don't think so. So I think it just comes back to when I speak to people, generally speaking, Tom, like most people don't understand these things. So it's just finding a way to relate around these different types of topics and have a conversation about them that's much more open and less judgmental because there's no judgment. Steve, uh, I think Steve's been the best person I've met, at least trying to teach his kids about money. And finally, after me yelling at him for a year and a half on this podcast, he booked a trip to Disney for his kids, regardless of what it's going to cost, because that is a life memory. Congratulations, Stephen, on finally spending a dollar. Did you feel good about it? Were, were your kids happy? Yeah, it was good. It was good. We're going and it'll be fun. And I, I don't have any issue with that. Tom's story. I don't have any issue with that, but I do think too many people spend their money on Disney. So, okay, fair enough. Hey, Alan, go a medium there. I'm really curious, Steve. Or Tom brought this up, and the way that you said this was kind of along the lines of like suggesting that Steve, you've been a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's uncertain or maybe 
unwilling to spend money on on these types of vacations or these types of things like is it is it that you don't want your kids to a either a spend the money on going on a trip or b find the value in saving money like what's the reason that you've been maybe nervous in the past about doing that sort of thing uh one oh tons of reasons one um i believe my kids were too young to appreciate it and i don't believe wasting money on uh kids that are too young to remember the thing in the first place. That's my first thing. Um, I have had a tin, I guess I'll call it, I'll call it a Coke bottle. There's a Coke bottle in our house for the last three or four years that every spare bit of change went into. And I told the kids when that got to the top, that was our Disneyland money. Um, so they've been learning to save. Um, this particular time it's we were actually looking at another vacation we ended up going now to disney and i think it's the right time because i think our kids are now old enough to to kind of appreciate it i've actually taken a different mindset completely um i did not want my kids on a plane at an early age um again that has to do with probably just cost and uh, a few other things but um i think a lot of people spend a lot of money on very young children's vacation that I think is a waste of time and energy when you should, when the kid doesn't matter, it's for the parent then, right? It's for your own gratification. And I don't believe it's for the benefit of the child, um, of which now I think they're old enough. So there's been so many different things, um, that have led towards that. Um, so I think it, it's all it's all culminating at the right time. Um, and yeah, I don't spend, I do not value vacation the way other people do. And I do value investment and, and growth and business more than I think most people do. And I think that that is a big, um, something I'm seeing particularly in a young, younger generation. And I just might be the old grumpy man, <clears throat> but I think there's a whole lot of people spending way too much money on gratification and experience as opposed to setting themselves up for uh the future and then being able to appreciate those things or afford those things when they can properly appreciate them as well hmm. if that makes any hey sense. well said absolutely yeah. i mean that's your uh your feelings, man. It's it's important, and appreciate the way that you you put that in context. I, I would say a couple things that I've learned, and and I won't push these towards anyone. Is is number one, it's a lot easy is the wrong word. It's a lot more possible pe- for people to earn more money now than ever before. Um, and I'm not suggesting you should outspend your habits at all. Like there's certainly a different conversation to be had there. But I think um, uh, one thing that shifted just in my life, and I very much Steve not on opposing that at all is is the first thing uh, the biggest shift that i had in my life over the last few years is the experiential side of things is to value that and so i'm curious and uh, thankful that i heard you say that second is um uh, instead of telling people to save uh for me personally instead of saying to someone like you you need to save every you know dollar here and track every dollar there i actually look at where they're earning money and what their possibilities to earn are and combine the two together so you need to have good spending habits of course um, but I think the earning potential is probably a greater one for most people than they actually realize. Um, and then the, the third thing that I heard you say is you value investing in business more than other people. And it, listen, I, I think as business owners who are doing this all day and all night, 
there's no doubt that we probably value that in a lot of ways more than other people because it's become a passion as long as that isn't your only passion and there's other things that you know you value outside of that i think that's an important consideration it's always interesting to hear different people's feedback but thanks for sharing that you can uh you can tell that alex is a pro he runs his own podcast just the way you you go through like you you, you just took it over the last 20 minutes you made my job so easy this was amazing it was awesome finally got steve to open up i can't crack this shell i keep trying um steve you would have passed out if you found out what the birthday cake costs for my two-year-old's birthday because we <laughs> had it custom made <laughs> Maybe. Oh no! I've had I've had plenty of those, Tom. I'm not. I'm just saying. Like I don't know. I'm. I. It, I'm it's getting such very an interesting frustrated point. with. Sorry. Go ahead. Go, go ahead, sorry, Steve. I, I was going to say it was such a. I'm, I'm just getting very frustrated by people who are complaining about the cost of living and then going on two week vacations or or month long vacations to Europe. I got no friggin' time for you people. I got none because you're not, you're choosing that two or three weeks of pleasure versus the other 48, 49 weeks of the year. And it just drives me up the wall. You're, you're wasting your entire life trying to enjoy a little bit of your life. It's just stupid to me. I, I want to put one comment on that or, or two. Number one, the first thing is um, just like what people see when they see us on social media, it's not exactly who we are. Uh, the people that you're seeing on there, it's it, the sad reality is that is there's, there's a lot of the keeping up with the Joneses that's happening out there. And that's just something that's people value this versus that. Um, I don't think that's all people, but there are a bunch of people who, who are like that. However, you, you know, we or us or people who are earning the, the, the money that we are trying to do or we are earning we shouldn't look at other people and say because they're doing it and that's all they do it should make us negative towards our, our own potential experiences because I, I totally felt like that way for a long time and so the way that i look at it is hey if you're gonna bitch and complain about it, that's your fucking problem not mine um and at the end of the day when when we put in the time and the energy that we do to earn what we, we have we can make these decisions and we can go have that kind of fun so i really appreciate you opening up that was awesome I think this was a perfect episode to start the new year. I think that was great. We finally cracked Steve's shell a little bit, and uh, it took a guest to do it. Um, Alex, for people that are listening to the end here, I know you're, you've gone really hard on building out your YouTube channel. Your Instagram's awesome. Where can they go to find you? For sure. Well, if it's not in the show notes, they can find me, Flow Mortgage Co., everywhere and uh definitely look up the mortgage pug on instagram because that's where i'm uh daily you can see me and uh if you don't like pugs then you probably don't want to follow if you are who doesn't like pugs seriously it's hard to not like pugs well steve you got you're a weird dog thing right you're not a dog guy not a dog (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody thank you for listening on behalf of steve and alex we appreciate you being here have a wonderful week we will see you next week bye